Welcome to the Edge Podcast with your host, Chris Ellers. Welcome to the Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ellers. I am enormously thrilled to have our next guest here with us, Tony-winning playwright, director of current smash hit film, Red, White, and Royal Blue, Matthew Lopez. Welcome to the Edge Podcast. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. First of all, congratulations on the incredible success of this movie. How are you feeling right now? It's been long enough now that I believe them when they tell me it's doing well. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been quite a riot this past month. Well, this past month plus the two years that I spent making the movie. We suspected the movie would do well enough given how popular the book is. What we were anticipating is that the movie would just be the phenomenon that it's become, which has been an incredible thing. We anticipated uh, the view that the viewership would largely consist of readers of the book. And that is, ha has absolutely been true. But it's just sort of grown so, so widely beyond that. that it, it has found its own audience besides just just the core the the fandom of the book, which has been which has been amazing. And I think also it's probably hopefully created all new sort of fandom of the book as a, as a result. So I, I've, I've just, we're, we're as, as the Brits would say, I'm a bit gobsmacked because it's just unreal. It's just unreal and very, very exciting. But it's crazy that that's your first feature film. Uh, has breaking into film always been something that's been part of your plan or did this come about organically? Yeah. I fell in love with movies the first time I was taken to one by my father. And uh, when I was, a kid when I was like four or five and I saw the Muppet movie uh, in in the theater. And I think it was being a teenager, being an American teenager in the 90s, when so many astoundingly good American films were, were being made, I was actually lucky enough to see Pulp Fiction in the theater on opening day. And that like for me and a whole generation of, of moviegoers my age just sort of like changed all the rules and it absolutely changed what we understood a movie could be and so i think actually that day was the day i i really decided whether consciously or unconsciously to to start to make movies i think making theater was a lot easier it was a lot more accessible to me i not just because of the family i grew up in but also just because theater is can be done it incredibly can, can be done incredibly cheaply. It can be done in your living room. It, theater is infinitely more forgiving of, of, of a lack of resources. And so that's where I started. But it was always the plan to make films. I just, I think it was half a strategy, which is like, we'll wait for the right thing. And half just sort of, well, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well in theater. I'm working, I'm getting produced, I'm busy. So let's not turn our back on that. For something that, as I know, is 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 very ephemeral, um, but but I'm very happy to be at this place now where I can where I can do both. I would have to imagine that it's scary already making your feature film debut with anything, but when you're adapting something that is so popular, so well liked, so beloved, does that add? Did that add a layer of pressure for you that you're you not only are you birthing this work into the world, but you're adapting something that people already have opinions about? Did that? What did that feel like? It was. I had to ignore it. I mean, it was just. It was an incredibly strategic decision from the get go to ignore it. I had to pretend that I was the only person who'd ever been told this story, and that I was just going to work 
from a place of ignorance because I think that it, it is just sort of that the idea of like when you're on a tightrope you don't the last thing you want to do is look down right and so I remember whether this is true or not I remember reading once that Michael Shabon in attempting to adapt one of his books sort of took on the 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 idea that instead of going back to the novel sort of obsessively he was just going to sort of rem- trust that he remembered the book and he was going to retell it as if it had been a story that someone had once sat down and told him. And it was a way of, I think, probably protecting himself from expectations, from sort of seizing up. Because, I mean, you know, a writer, an artist, if you do look down when you're on that tightrope, you can seize up very quickly. So I think that there's, there's a lot of wisdom to that idea of Michael Chabon's. And while I didn't necessarily sort of heed it to the letter, I do think that it was helpful to just pretend it was a story that Casey McQuiston sat down and, and told me over lunch one day, rather than a book that millions and millions of people adore. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you're adapting something else right now that's beloved and it's the bodyguard. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm glad you've gotten your practice in of ignoring the noise, because I think for something like the bodyguard, you're really just going to have to, um, I don't know, what do you do? Pretend that this story was like sent to you from above? Like where, how do you work on something so beloved and has red, white and Royal blue prepared you for that? It's tricky to answer that question right now because my work on, on the bodyguard is solely as a writer. And because of the writer strike right now, I'm not talking about any of my writing. Um, and, um, what I can say, cause it, the same principle applies to Red White as it does to Howard's End or any other adaptation that I've sort of taken on, which is you have to claim it for your own. There's a kind of arrogance to the act of adaptation that you have to take on. I was actually reminded of the fact that the word arrogant comes from the Latin to claim for oneself. You must be arrogant when you when you adapt to anything, you have to claim it for yourself. I think anytime you're doing something that has been done before, you have to be arrogant enough to claim it for yourself and just to pretend that it's it's your idea. And for a time, it is. And one of the things that I love about adapting novels, it is a kind of sanctioned plagiarism <laughs> because anytime you get into trouble, all you have to do is open that book, which has been purchased for the express purpose of you doing this adaptation. And so, uh, and by purchase, I mean like the rights to do it. But it does require that kind of arrogance to just simply say, this is mine now and I'm going to do whatever I, I need to do with it in order to tell the story effectively. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Matthew Lopez. Looking for more? Discover culture, videos, out and about photos and more. Just log on and click edgemedianetwork.com. Welcome back to the Edge Podcast. I'm Chris Ellers. I am here with Tony winning playwright Matthew Lopez, director of the new film Red, White and Royal Blue. Matthew, you alluded earlier to uh, your family, to your upbringing. You have very cool connections to sort of the theater and film worlds. Your aunt, Tony winning original cast member of A Chorus Line, which is crazy. But the thing I think is so cool is that your father was an extra in the West Side Story movie. He was, yeah. Tell me more about growing up in that. I mean, did he have stills of the film in every room in your house? <laughs> no, but I, you know what I actually have in my, uh, my workspace is... Um, his payslip, the uh, uh, literally from Central Casting, which is hilarious. They're actually printed on the front, Central Casting. 
and it is his his payslip for for the day and he was given one for every day that they were that they worked on the set and it's like his name his address what he worked the 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 west side story extra the mirish company it's amazing and i have it framed in there and 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 there are some ma- amazing stories that that he and my my family my aunt and my uncle tell about about working on it and it's actually something that i put into my place somewhere uh, which is, you know, about a Puerto Rican family obsessed with West Side Story in 1959, and and sort of the the impact of that show and on on sort of the identities of, of of Puerto Rican New Yorkers who worked in you know my in my play worked in theater, but were sort of sidelined by 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 it as well. So yeah, it was cool. It's 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 actually I remember being a kid and being shown that movie for the first time and and on VHS because I'm that old. And there, my dad would pause pause the movie and like because you can imagine it's VHS. It's very grainy and not very as clear as what we have have access to now. But he's like pointing to this like grainy dot on the screen and he goes, "That's me. That was me at 14 years old." Yeah, they they um they had a great time apparently watching. And you know what the thing the thing that's amazing to me is that. Like a lot of that, because he's in the opening sequence when they're fighting on the playground. And we all have, those of us who know that film very well, have in our minds what that scene looks like. And what is amazing is that my father, because of where he's situated, he is one of the few people on earth who has the reverse angle memory. He was standing there staring at the crew and the cameras. And I asked him once, I said, can you conjure the memory of standing there and watching that scene being filmed, but from the reverse angle from what any of us have ever seen before. And he goes, yeah, I do. I can conjure right now. And it's like that to me for this film nerd, that's pretty cool. How did he get involved in West Side Story? Was he living in the neighborhood and people were walking through the streets saying, hey, you You know, my grandmother, who was sort of this, you know, a stage mother, she I think it was my Aunt Priscilla's dance classes. My grandmother would she was a seamstress for a time and she 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 I can't remember the association with it. But anyway, my dad tells the story of being woken up at like four o'clock in the morning. They were living in Brooklyn in the Fort Greene housing projects and my grandmother waking them up and saying, we're get up get dressed, we're going to the city and dragging them. And and my memory of the story is that they don't really know why they're going there. And they're being taken to be extras in the West Side Story movie. And so it was very much my grandmother just sort of like grabbing them all and taking them. Of course, they were all very excited. My uncle tells the story of, so if you can imagine that the fact that they, my dad did grow up in housing projects that sort of economically where they, where my family was in the 1950s. My uncle goes into the wardrobe tra- into the wardrobe trailer and he is asked his shoe size and they 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 grab a pair a brand new pair of sneakers and they put it on my uncle who's like in these ratty old sneakers that he's been wearing for the last two years you know and they fit these brand new sneakers on him and he can't believe his luck these brand new sneakers fitted just to him and then right it fits and then someone from wardrobe takes these brand new sneakers and rubs dirt on it and takes some sandpaper and scuffs it up. And my uncle is just like, ah, why didn't you, uh, you know what? I just wear my shoes, which are dirty and scuffed up, and you could just give me those brand new ones to take home with me. And so that endless story, you could do an entire podcast, I think, on my family's stories of, of doing the West Side Story movie. Your aunt, Tony Winner for A Chorus Line, Priscilla Lopez, you were two when A Chorus Line opened, or? No, I was, I, you aged me a bit. I was... Uh, I was born in 77. So uh, I, I was born just after, just after Chorus Line started. That is such a seminal 
show and that original cast is one of the most storied in all of history because of their the way they helped shape the show you know and a lot of us who were in theater discovered a chorus line long after the fact through the on the line book and through all of these great things that still exist at what point in your childhood or teen years did you discover that your aunt was part of something so incredibly important i remember knowing that she was part of something and because my parents were loving but a little like strict about content i wasn't allowed to listen to it for a time because it had dirty words in it and there even the cap recording and, and stuff like that so i remember finally getting my hands on it when i was maybe about 12 you know 10 11 12 something like that and like listening to it for the first time and and i'm just being blown away by it. like holy shit this is like this is great independent of my my aunt's role in it you know and and then but to hear her voice come across on 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 my record player getting to age me so she was in chorus line in 75 76 and then she won a tony for hollywood ukraine in 81 i think 81 i think and i was old enough to have seen that i saw it on broadway with her in it and i remember being a kid and being put to bed early and my parents were staying up to watch something and i hear screaming in the living room and i come out of my room into the living room my parents are screaming and i'm like what you know what's going on and my mother's like you're your aunt just won a Tony Award. And I remember just sort of like watching her get there, get up on the TV, on, on my television, get up on the stage and accept her Tony Award. And and, uh, and then I was sent back to bed. <laughs> For me, it was Day in Hollywood, Night in Ukraine, seeing it, then sort of watching her win a Tony on television. Decades later, and you know, my my brother has a video of like them sitting around the TV watching me win a Tony and my, my nieces and nephew are, are there in the room, um, which is sort of a nice full Lopez family circle moment but there was such a huge part of my life where it was she was just aunt priscilla she was my cool aunt priscilla for sure like she was definitely like the you know the cool aunt but i think when i was about 10 11 12 i started to really kind of fully understand it but i will be honest with you it wasn't until i moved to new york city in my early 20s and i started to work in theater and i started to get to know people who were inspired by her who were as obsessed with her as an actor and as an icon of musical theater, as I seem to have been of her as a family member, that I realized that she, that that while my relationship to her was incredibly unique and deeply special to me, life in a life changing sort of way, I would say it really wasn't until I was in my early twenties, living and working in New York in theater, that I understood how important she was to so many people. So at family events, was she, you know, teaching you all the opening uh, number choreography things? No, the like problem, <laughs> sad story is I'm a terrible dancer. So even, you know, I think that there, there, there would have been wasted, wasted time. I was absolutely starstruck by her from an, a very early age, like absolutely starstruck. And it just sort of grew and grew and grew over, over the years. Well, to be honest, I'm a little starstruck by you because your play, The Inheritance, which has been called the most successful play in a generation, was a life-changing thing for me. It was for everyone I know who saw it. And so talking to you is is kind of incredible to me. Your play, Massive Undertaking, basically seven and a half hours, two parts. It was a huge hit in the UK by the time it came to Broadway. Take me back to that night of the Tony Awards. You're sitting there, you're nominated for best play. 
you know at that point that if you win, you will become the first Latine playwright to win the best play Tony, right? But despite all of the success that your show already had, Inheritance was not necessarily a shoe in to win that award. It was a tight race. It was a really tight race. Take me back to what you're thinking when you're sitting there. If you look at awards merely as as um, as they are r- literal races for things, you know, and if you look at early awards as prognosticators, I hadn't lost a single award up to that point in the life of the play. Like it was a weird. It was funny. Like I just, I, I mean. I just won them all. Like, I mean, it's just true. I got to the Tonys that night, having not yet lost a single award that I was up for, for the play over the course of the the life of the play. And that was in London and and in New York. If you knew that that was true, I was sort of like, well, I like my chances. But I also went into those Tonys sort of going, I also know that there's a very, very good chance. And I think I probably allowed myself to assume it was likely I would lose. I think I definitely went into those Tony Awards assuming it was likely I was going to lose. I couldn't allow myself to think that I would win. I went, I sat down in my seat just kind of expecting to lose and, 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 and sort of expecting perhaps that Lois might be our only win. We may have, you know, th- was thinking maybe we'd pick up a couple of design awards, but I wasn't sort of certain about anything. I wrote that speech, of course, because I, I'm not an idiot and I knew that there was a chance I could win. You know, I didn't want to fumble for for what to say because I did know that I would be the first Latin A writer ever to win Best Play. And I needed to make sure that I said it because I wasn't at all certain the press would say it if I didn't say it. And I actually remember I read it in my speech. I printed my speech and I gave it to my husband to hold on to. And I just said, hold on to this speech for me and I'll tell you if and when I want it. And Stephen won. And then Andrew won. And remember when Andrew left the stage, I looked over at my husband and I said, give me my speech. (laughs) (laughs) But that was a crazy year because I don't remember when the Tonys fell, but it was long delayed. It was the COVID year. It was in September. It was actually shockingly that so, so strange. It was two years to the day after the first preview on Broadway. Yeah, so that in itself made for could have made for a very, very unpredictable award show because none of these shows were fresh in any voters' minds. It was really, in one respect, you were all in the same playing field. Sometimes you think, oh, these shows are still running. These shows aren't still running. Maybe the newer ones will be fresher in their mind. There's always that. Things weren't hadn't been running. And a lot of the shows that were nominated were were distant memories at that point. None of the plays were running at all, I, I think. Um, none of the plays were. And I think only Moulin Rouge and perhaps Jack the Little Pill were back on. It was just weird. It was just sort of like it was celebrating a lot of closed shows. And you know, I mean, the, 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 inevitably, a lot of shows are closed by the time the Tonys come around, just because that's the nature of the season or that's just the nature of the business. And because it had been two years, that it, it almost felt like a three-hour in memoriam. Oh, no. <laughs> Because it was just a bunch of closed shows. But I also think that it was so important. We were also the longest nominated class because we were nominated in October of 2020. And the the Tonys weren't until September of the following year. So all of us, all of those nominees that year, we were probably the longest serving Tony nominees in history because it just kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. I was really grateful that, that they finally went through with it and they went through with it in such a in something approaching a traditional way, because I think that it would have acknowledged the the power of the pandemic 
to stop us from creating. And they, we couldn't allow that to be true. On the one hand, that wait was interminable. Like it was literally two years to the day from the time, from the first preview on Broadway. But I'm glad that we didn't allow that to become a lost season. It was half a season for sure, but it it wasn't a lost season. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one from that season who feels that way. When the inheritance closed, it was the same day that everything else closed, I believe, yeah. right? It was yeah. March 11th, 12th, somewhere around there. March 11th. I remember I wasn't supposed to be at the show that day. It was a two-day. It was a Wednesday. It was a two-show day, which meant for us both parts, right? A full thing. I had a friend in town seeing the show, and I met her for dinner between shows, and I caught the end of part one. I came in just in time to see The Haunting, which is what called the sequence at the end of part part one. So I got there just in time to catch the haunting. And you could feel some like I've I've sat through that scene many, 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 many times in my life. And that was one of the those nights that it just sort of felt something is happening inside this theater that is pretty magical and pretty, I will be honest with you, but also kind of awful. It, awful in an okay way. You know what I mean? It was just a lot. A lot of emotions were in that in that in that crowd more than normal. And I decided to stay for part two that night, even though I hadn't planned to. And I'm really glad that I did because it was the very, it was the last time they ever did the show. And I remember texting Tom Curtis, my one of my producers on the way home that night saying, I think I just saw the last performance of the inheritance. And uh, he, he wrote, he wrote me back almost immediately. And he says, I hope you're wrong, but I'm glad you were there tonight. And in fact, it was, I have to ask, are there any plans? Are there any conversations about bringing the inheritance back? I feel like more people need to see it. And it seems like such, um, you know, it's one of, I think, COVID's greatest in the theater world, of the Broadway's greatest losses um, is that more people didn't get to see the inheritance. Are there, is, are there any conversations about it coming back at any stage? point not not presently it's very expensive it's an incredibly expensive play to produce and yeah. even that even the seemingly stripped back production that Stephen Dalder created is underneath it all is our you know gears and winches and 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 uh, and hydraulics and, and it's a big 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 forget the play it's a big product that is a big production um and it's a company of I think it was 42 actors. Wow. Uh, it, it's it's, an, it, it's a, an incredibly expensive play to produce. And we are seeing shows fall away without recouping left and right. Shows that should have recouped, shows that before the pandemic would be successful. And so I think financially, it's just too risky to, to contemplate remounting Stevens production. And I don't even think that anything smaller would be all that cheaper to produce either. It's a big cast, like you said. I think the last thing I want to I want to ask you is on the same token, um, now that you're fully immersed in the world of film, you have a full slate, including adapting one of your other plays I really like, The Legend of Georgia McBride, which I saw here in Boston also. If there are no plans to bring Inheritance back to New York, is there a miniseries? Is there a you know, film, is there something in the works on that front? Yeah, I would love that. I would, I would absolutely love that. I think I need more time away from it. The inheritance was a full decade of my life from, well, I, you know, it closed on Broadway three years ago, right? 
three, five, four years ago, four years, four years ago, almost four years ago. Um, so it was, it was, it was seven, seven years of my life, let's say. And it was seven, not laid back years of my life that, that you, if you can imagine doing that play takes a toll emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, the, the work. So I think that in terms of my work in the inheritance, I was pretty wrung dry by the time it was over. I would love to do something with it. I think it would absolutely work very well on television. Unfortunately, nothing's happening in television right now until we until the writers get a deal. And so <laughs> there are a lot of things a lot of people would love to be doing right now until there's a fair deal on the table from the studios. Nobody's doing nothing. Assuming we can get to that place. Yeah, I would love that. I think that would be a beautiful, beautiful experience. Um, I do need more time away from it. I need to come back to it. If I come back to it right now, I don't know. I've learned enough about the next phase of my life to bring anything new to it. I think I need to sort of, that play represents where I was up to the point they took the pen away from me on the Broadway production. Cause I kept rewriting. I kept, I mean, Stephen and I, Oh my God, poor Jill Cordell, our production stage manager on Broadway is just sort of like, it has the patience of a saint. She watched us rework that thing and rework, rewrite and rearrange scenes up until the very last second um and and we kept working on it right up until the time we were doing press previews so it represents my state of mind my experience my philosophy up to that point in my life i need a little more experience a little more more time i need a little more philosophy and i'll come back to it i hope and and with the perspective of of an older man maybe it'll yield something newer and better well it's hard to imagine better but i i i, I am hopeful to see uh what comes of it and what comes of, you. of your career it's really i'm curious to see that too <laughs> <laughs> it's really been um such an impressive uh admirable trajectory that you're on so congratulations for everything and matthew thank you for being with us today we can't wait to see what's next from you this is the Edge Podcast, and thank you for tuning in. This has been the Edge Podcast with your host, Chris Ellers. Find us online 24-7 at edgemedianetwork.com. 